0: KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of
1: Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. According to the latest data, there are almost 19,000 people living with HIV in Philadelphia. Over 63% of them are black. We'll talk with a doctor from the Health Resources and Services Administration about the Ryan White HIV-AIDS program. This week's newsmaker heads up the largest provider for emergency housing services for the homeless in our area. He's also an HIV-AIDS educator and a civil rights advocate.
2: We were one of the first major cities to actually have an office that coordinated AIDS activities
1: our changemaker this week is a 16-year-old from North Philly who's a star in the making.
0: You know, people are like, how do we help the communities of Philadelphia? Give the kids hope. Straight
1: ahead on Bridging Philly. Hello and welcome to Bridging Philly. I'm Merkel Williams. Monday is National Black HIV Awareness Day, and each year, the Health Resources and Services Administration's HIV-AIDS Bureau observes the day as an opportunity to increase awareness about HIV education, testing, care, and treatment of services among the African-American community. Now, here in Philadelphia and in many cities across the nation, the Ryan White HIV-AIDS program is in place. We're going to hear more about this now with our guest, Dr. Laura Cheever. She is physician and associate administrator of the HIV-AIDS Bureau, Health Resources and Services Administration. Welcome to the program, Dr. Cheever. Well, of course, as we said, Monday is National Black HIV-AIDS Awareness Day. First, let's start off by discussing this and what this day is designed to do. Uh,
3: so for us, uh, within the Ryan White HIV-AIDS program, the observance is really an opportunity uh, to increase awareness about hiv Um, education, testing, community involvement, care, and treatment services among the Black and African-American community, which is particularly hard hit by HIV.
1: Well, Dr. Cheever, it seems as though AIDS was on the back burner for a while, and it seems as though that this is not as as difficult a conversation to have as it once was. Let's talk about the stigma surrounding HIV-AIDS and the fact that People are able to talk about this now and, and and treatments are a little bit better. Let's talk about that st- stigma. Does that still exist?
3: So um, I think the stigma situation with the stigma around HIV is improved, but I would hardly say it's gone. And it's a major barrier to people accessing care and treatment services. Um, we we know, for example, that many people that have high rates of stigma, either in among um, in, within their community or even self internalized stigma are less likely to get HIV care treatment services and aren't likely to do as well. And that's a huge problem because HIV today is a completely treatable disease. People can live live a long, healthy lifetime and die of something else if they have HIV infection. Um, But in my practice in Baltimore, I have many patients who, um, Within their families, they, if they go and eat out at a family's house, they have to use paper plates, they have to clean up behind themselves in bathrooms with bleach. This is in Baltimore, where they've had HIV for a long time, and I'm sure this is probably happening in Philadelphia, too. And it really has to do with the lack of education and understanding that people have about HIV infection. HIV is a disease that's transmitted primarily through having sex, as well as uh, through sharing needles, and can be transmitted from a mother to an unborn child. But it is not a disease that you're going to get casually from having lunch or drinking after someone um, using a glass or using a bathroom. And people need to understand that because that level of stigma and shame really um, is detrimental to people's lives.
1: You know, it's interesting that you say that you have a client that had to use bleach and they had to use paper plates. That's really shocking in 2022, because, you know, I, I remember a time where people didn't want to sit next to someone who had HIV or AIDS and they didn't want to breathe the same air as someone who had HIV. I mean, uh, we've come around and we've been pretty educated at this point.
3: Yeah, it's more than one client of mine. I don't think that um, that we really have overcome the stigma the way we need to. And the other challenge we really have is that because HIV is still primarily transmitted sexually, and there are all these issues about sex and American talking about it. There's still a ton of taboo issues around that. And a lot of patients are caught in this sense of intersectionality, right? Not only do they have HIV, which has stigma, then they're African-American and we have the systemic racism. And then they might also be gay and there's homophobia or they're trans and they're having all the transphobia. So they're really this issue of intersectionality where they have multiple things going on that are impacting them. Certainly, um, is part of the reason why I think HIV still so heavily impacts the African-American community. We should also make note
1: of the fact that this was once considered a disease uh, for only for men who sleep with men. And that has not been the case for a long time. uh, As far as I know, Uh, let's let's talk about that for a minute. This is no longer just a disease of homosexual men, and it hasn't been for a while.
3: Right. Uh, most, most infections in the United States still are among men who have sex with men, but certainly we know that heterosexual women are also at risk of HIV, and particularly African-American women are more likely to have HIV than white women, you know, significant increased risk. Um, the other thing that's really complicated is that, for example, among African-American women, it's not like their individual behaviors are putting them at higher risk than white women, But they're in communities with higher rates of HIV. So if someone is having sex with one or two partners and they're living in an area like some neighborhoods of Philadelphia that have a lot of HIV, they're more likely to get it than if they're living in a neighborhood with really low rates of HIV. It's sort of an environmental factor as well.
1: Now tell me again why the agency is commemorating National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day.
3: Yes, well, for us, we administer the Ryan White HIV AIDS Program, which is a national program. We give funding to city and state health departments and community-based organizations to provide HIV care and treatment services for people who can't get it on their own. And we know that there are many people in the United States who have HIV, they know they have HIV, and they are not in care. And that's a problem because, one, that person is at risk of dying of HIV way before you know, at a very young age, whereas if they got on treatment, they could live a long and healthy life. And two, people that get on treatment and become virally suppressed, which means they're taking medication every day, it's currently one pill once a day with few or no side effects to treat HIV, Um, they can reach what we call viral suppression and have effectively no risk of transmitting HIV to other people. So by being on treatment, not only do they prolong their life, they also help protect the ones they love.
1: What exactly is the Ryan White HIV AIDS program?
3: So, the Ryan White program is a federal program that provides uh, funding for care, uh, HIV medical care, treatment, including antiretroviral medications and support services, things like emergency housing, helping with emergency bills to keep lights on or heating on, as well as childcare, transportation to visits, emergency food, to help people that are living at or below the federal poverty line really connect to care and stay in care. And by funding these clinics, we really provide a place where people feel welcome. People with HIV can come in and know that um, there's not going to be any uh, stigma around their, their, um, their disease, that, that uh, gay and trans people and people of all sorts of different denominations should be able to get care that is really culturally relevant to them. Um, and so that helps improve the outcomes. So in our program, we provide services to over half of all the people with diagnosed HIV in this country which is huge. It really talks about how much this disease has become a disease of people that are living at or below the federal poverty line, um, one. Um, and, and two, people that are in our program actually do much better than the national average, I think, because they are in that warm and welcoming environment and have those other support services they need uh, to stay in care. So when did
1: this program begin in Philadelphia? And tell me about how it's been going thus far.
3: Yeah. So, so this program initially was uh, focused on cities most highly impacted with HIV, and since Philadelphia has such a long history of HIV, um, it was one of the first cities engaged. So that was in the early 1990s that uh, that the Ryan White program uh, was first funded by Congress and then uh, actually uh, sent funding specifically to Philadelphia to help people there. Um, get uh, services they needed at that time. Um, This was before we had really highly effective medications. Uh, We did have AZT. So it's been in uh, Philadelphia since that time and um, has had great leadership since the very beginning. Uh, Within uh, the Ryan White program, funding that is sent to cities by law, the people that are in the city, highly impacted by the disease are sitting at the table, deciding the priorities for funding. Um, and you had a great leader at that time, Jesse Mylon, who helped uh, be the co-chair of that committee that was deciding um, how those funds should be spent for people in Philadelphia. So we in Washington, D.C., don't make those decisions. The people in Philadelphia make those decisions, including people um, living with HIV.
1: Talk about some of the changes that you've seen in the communities since the Ryan White program has been in effect. Perhaps you can talk about some of the more significant changes that you've seen over the years.
3: Yes. So it has been a super exciting time. I started in HIV care in 1990 in San Francisco, where I saw many, many uh, primarily young men there come into the emergency room uh, with opportunistic infections. So we would diagnose them with HIV and with uh, pneumocystis pneumonia at the same time. And most of those people would be dead within a year. Um, it was a really, really tough time. And people had long pro- uh, protracted deaths with multiple uh infections related to HIV infection. And then in 1996, suddenly we had this host of new drugs that worked incredibly well, but they were hard to take. So many people needed to be on literally a handful of pills a day that they would have to take at certain times with food, without food and on a very regimented schedule. Now we have one pill once a day for almost everyone that's newly diagnosed and people that have been um, virally suppressed for a long time. Most people can be on one pill once a day Uh, little or no side effects. So those have been really exciting changes. Um, What has changed less, as I've already said, is things around stigma, right? So that people with HIV still themselves feel a lot of shame about having this diagnosis or in their communities, you know, within their churches, within their families, there's so much said against either HIV or being gay or whatever those issues are um, that really impact people and keep them out of care.
1: I mean, thanks to a lot of advances where HIV AIDS is concerned, people are thriving. They're living their lives. They're living and they're dying with dignity, which isn't something that I know that they've, they've wanted uh, since the, the beginning of this whole thing when it all started. And people are thriving. They're, they're able to live their lives thanks to the advancements, the support systems and the medications. Talk about that for a minute. Talk about some success stories that you're familiar with where this is concerned.
3: Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting. Um, so many people, when we go around the country to talk about what's going on and really get feedback from communities, we spend a lot of time in community engagement, hearing directly from people with lived experience. One of the common refrains we hear is, you know, Ryan White saved my life, which is so incredibly um, fulfilling in running a program, which can is part of the government and can be a little bureaucratic at times on our end, knowing that at the level of people in receiving services, it works well for them. Um, So uh, some of uh, some of my patients, for example, when I first met them were using drugs at the time I first started in Baltimore, which is where I practice now. Crack was a big thing. A lot of people um, uh, either crack or heroin was a major way in which they were being exposed to HIV or factors related to that. So um, for them getting that diagnosis meant it was sort of a wake-up call that they needed to live differently. And they were able to get services because of our program that they might not have gotten before, like really integrated service where mental health or substance use treatment was part of their primary care and not some sort of separate thing they were doing. Um, A lot of acceptance, um, such that they were able to uh, get their feet under them, uh, get on treatment. And so um, their HIV diagnosis was sort of a gateway for them uh, to get the types of services that they needed that they weren't necessarily getting prior. So we we do hear that a lot. Um, and that was even before we had such effective treatment. Now that we have effective treatment, it, it means even more. Um, people will come in sometimes and say, I didn't know there wasn't treatment for HIV. I've had it for 10 years and no one ever told me. And I hate hearing those stories because it's so much missed opportunity for that patient who... Um, was uh, you know living in this fear that they were going to die and just trying to go you know about their lives and not understanding that this is it's a whole new world out there, including women who want to have children. I can't tell you the number of times I'd met women who were just so tearful and grieving because they had HIV and now they thought they could never have children or more children, and I'm like, no, not at all. We get you on medication. The risk of transmitting to your child is almost zero in the United States if you're in care. So you do not need to close off all of those avenues to what you think is going to fulfill you. So really exciting times. People going back and getting their college degrees because they had stopped going to college because they had HIV. And so what was the point? Um, really, really exciting.
1: Wow. Lots of advancements and changes for the better. So, of course, that's good to hear. Dr. Cheever, talk about Ryan White. Who was he? Yeah.
3: So Ryan White uh, was an Indiana teenager who was diagnosed with HIV when he was about 13 years old. Um, he had gotten HIV through a blood transfusion and when his mom, and given just a few months to live. And so when his mother said, well, what do you want to do with the time you have? He's like, I want to go to school and be a kid. It's hugely insightful. You know, he didn't want to go to Disneyland and eat ice cream all day long. He just wanted to live his life the best he could. And in his uh, community, uh, he, was, they were una- he was unable to go to school. Although at that point in time, as you said earlier, HIV is not transmitted by sitting in a chair, sitting next to someone. Um, He was really um, barred from being able to go to school. So he uh, fought to really educate people about HIV, how it is transmitted and issues around HIV um, stigma. Um, As a result of that, uh, when Congress did pass this law to allow uh, funding for HIV care and treatment services, as well as these support services, they named the bill after him. And, the, and we had to have the law because there were a lot of medical providers as well that did not want to treat people with HIV because of their fear about the disease and getting
1: it. You know, living in poverty, and of course Philadelphia being one of the most impoverished in the nation, being living in poverty should not mean at all that that that's a death sentence because there's no uh, support systems or or treatment uh, available to you. Let's talk about some of the barriers to care that are hindering African-American communities from properly accessing or staying engaged in HIV care and treatment.
3: Yeah, so that's a great question. I think um, we saw with COVID as well that um, that we do have huge disparities in how HIV how care in this country, medical care, is delivered and how people access care. So this is some of this is related to HIV, but much of this is much broader um, beyond HIV. I think um, uh, we have a long history in this United in the United States of having um, some concern or distrust in the African American community in particular around medical treatment. I mean, there's a there's a legacy of real discriminatory practices and unethical practices that have led to this sense of, um, of mistrust. So that's that's a part of it. Um, we know that people that are have less education or have less income are less likely to have good access to medical care. For all of us, I think almost regardless of type of insurance, accessing medical care in the, in the United States is not that easy, right? Between your primary having a primary care provider getting specialty services, getting referrals, knowing how to get to clinic. Um, there are issues around, for my patients, if, if they just got a check that they need uh, in order to pay their electric bill and keep their electric turned on or keep their gas turned on in the winter, or they have to have a medical appointment that day and they don't have a car, so everything's going to take them several hours in a bus to get to wherever they need do to pay their bills. They're going to have to prioritize making sure that their rent is paid and their and their electricity is turned on, overcoming to medical care. That's just a reality. And so all of those things for people that are living um, sort of at or below the federal poverty line impact their ability to access services.
1: Let's talk about treatment options. You did mention HAZT at one point, but I'm assuming that there have been so many advances that there is more than one option as far as treatment and medications uh, are concerned.
3: Yeah, so we don't really use AGT anymore, except women sometimes. So I just started, that was the only drug we had then. And that was a pretty toxic drug in terms of side effects. Today, we have many, many options that are literally one pill once a day for people. So it's very easy for people when they're newly diagnosed or if they've been suppressed for a long time to get onto a once a day option. as I said, there, there, are, there are many of those and very few of them have really any side effects. It you know, sort of depends on the person's um, clinical status in terms of exactly which drug is best for them. Some drugs need to be taken with food, others not necessarily. Some drugs can't be used if someone has significant kidney disease. So you need to sort of individualize the therapy, but it's really easy to find a one pill once a day with no side effects for almost everyone.
1: Let's talk about testing. I know that was something that was very important at the start of this whole uh, situation, knowing your status. Are we still testing at the same rate? Are people uh, starting to do more tests at the doctor's office? How's that going? Yes.
3: Yeah, so that is a challenge we have in the United States with about one point two million people with HIV. Of those, about one hundred and fifty thousand or one in eight don't know uh, their HIV status. One in eight people with HIV don't know the status. So that's a really high number. Um, if you think about it. Uh, So the issues I think there are that that people don't get tested because they're not being routinely tested by their doctor, which they should be. So people that are in medical care, sometimes I have a patient that comes in and they're pretty advanced in their HIV. And I'm like, well, did you consider testing earlier? And they're like, I go to the doctor every year. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think your doctor was testing you for HIV though. So people assume they're being tested for HIV by their doctor and they're not. So that's the first thing. And some people don't want to know. So in some parts of this country, we have places where there's, there's HIV criminalization laws, where if you have HIV and you have sex with someone, you can be prosecuted in any number of ways. Now, we're working hard to turn those laws around, and they're not everywhere, but they still exist in some communities. So some people just don't want to know they have it for legal reasons. Some people don't want to know they have it for all those issues around stigma and whatever. It's just better not to know. Um, So I think those are some of the the major barriers to testing. It's easier than ever to get tested now. So I want to encourage people, if you have not been tested for HIV, if you're 13 years or older and you've had ever had sex with anyone, then you should have at least one HIV test in your lifetime. And you get retested if um, you have uh, anything that's putting you at risk for acquiring HIV and including having sex with multiple sex partners, if you're a gay man, if you've had a sexually transmitted disease, all those people should be retested for HIV um, during the pandemic, we really went to self-testing, which is where health departments will often mail you a test in your home and you can test yourself. Um, there are two ways of doing that. One way is you can test yourself and actually get the results yourself, like a quick test as you would do for COVID these days in your own home and know the result, other forms of testing. You, you take a saliva sample and you send it back in the mail to the health department and they do the testing there. So, um, we have lots of options. Should we be going to our doctors
1: requesting these tests when we visit our doctors on a yearly basis or are doctors asking patients uh, if they would like to be tested or suggesting it for those who are at higher
3: risk? Both of those things, yes. So people should be requesting an HIV test. Um, people should be going to an annual doctor's visit. A lot of people don't do that. If you're not doing that, I'd still say you should go to HIV.gov, the website, the bottom of the page. it's You can look, it'll say... Uh, where to get testing or treatment. And you can click on that link. You can, you can put in your zip code there and it'll bring you a series of um, resources to get testing in your neighborhood or in your area, as well as to get te- getting a self-test potentially sent to you. So that's a good option. The other thing we haven't talked about is for people that test negative. And if you're at risk for HIV, like if you're a gay man and you're having sex with multiple people, you can start on, on something called PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. So for someone who does not have HIV, you can start on a medication where you take one pill once a day. um, And there's some other ways of getting PrEP medication as well, but one pill once a day and significantly lower your risk of acquiring HIV infection. So Ah. PrEP is not used very often, not the way it should be. There's actually now a new medication you can actually get Medication uh, through injection, so so once every two months you'd go into the doctor and get an injection to help prevent HIV infection for people that are at high risk.
1: So where can people learn more about the Ryan White HIV/AIDS program?
3: Yes, so uh, I'd recommend you check out our website, HAB—that's H A B dot H-R-S-A dot gov—and there you will find all sorts of uh, resources of where you can get care and treatment in your area, um, as well as other information about the program.
1: Dr. Laura Cheever, Associate Administrator of the HIV-AIDS Bureau Health Resources and Services Administration, thank you so much for joining us on Bridging Philly.
3: Well, Raquel, thanks so much for your interest. And I really hope that people uh, take advantage of getting tested. And if you know you have HIV and aren't in care, getting into treatment.
2: 30 seconds to second chances brought to you by the Gift of Life donor program. Abdul Karim Salahuddin was near death in 2014. I needed to get a liver transplant. At the same time, Carol McLeod's son had a seizure.
4: Ryan
5: was declared brain dead.
2: Carol, an Irish Catholic, decided to donate his organs. That's something that he would have wanted. Kareem, a devout Muslim, received Ryan's liver. God orchestrated this thing for us to come together. Now their family.
3: He's my older adopted son.
2: Register as an organ donor at donors1.org and help save lives.
1: Mike Henson, Jr. is president and COO of Self, Inc., the largest provider of emergency housing services for the homeless in our area. He's also an HIV AIDS educator and civil rights advocate. He's worked to keep health and education of marginalized communities at the forefront of priorities for policymakers throughout Philadelphia. Sharaday Howard sits down with our Newsmaker of the Week.
4: Philadelphia has historically been a trailblazing city from politics to the arts and with National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day in mind. Mike Henson, president of Self Inc. and an HIV AIDS civil rights advocate, he reminds us Philadelphia is also the city of firsts, especially when it comes to combating HIV. Welcome to Bridging Philly, Mike. I'm just going to dive right in. Can you tell us how Philadelphia is unique in its approach to taking HIV head on?
2: So I think... You know, Philadelphia gets a bad rap, but Philly, you know, is really a city of a lot of first in many ways. Much like our sports fans, our activism community, our activist community is very uh, transparent and very unapologetic and very smart. I'll say that. So when I say that Philly, um, you know, has a lot of firsts. We were one of the first major cities to actually have a office that coordinated AIDS activities um, throughout our, you know, throughout our city. We were the, one of the first major cities to have that in the country. And that was started by our first Black mayor, W. Um, Dr. W. Uh, Wilson Good, Sr., who is actually the chair of Self Inc., And so, you know, he started the AIDS activities coordinating office when no one was thinking about coordinating AIDS activities in a major city. Right. Um, One of the first black AIDS responding organizations um, in the country, Bibashi, um, which used to go by blacks educating blacks about sexual Health issues. But today is Bibashi, I think, transitioning to the future was started by Dr. Rashida Abdul-Kabir. Uh, who was a nurse practitioner and infectious disease control specialist at Einstein Hospital. And interesting enough with uh, Dr. Kabir, she's a Muslim woman who was working in as an infectious disease practitioner at a hospital. And she saw that a large number of Black gay men were dying alone in the hospital of HIV. And she made it her mission to start this organization. In one of the first places she went to as a Muslim woman, this is how unapologetic, when I talk about our activists and our activist community, as a Muslim woman, she went into a gay club called Smart Place. As a Muslim woman, she went into a gay club at Smart Place and said to the people, the patrons in there, I don't know what y'all doing, I may not agree with everything that you're doing, but let me tell you this, people who look like y'all are dying in the hospital alone, we need to talk. And it was Dr. Kabir that really started me on my sort of journey um, into activism, into public health and and, and really gave me the mentorship and, you know, the support to really stand tall um, in my blackness in my gayness and all of those things to say to a bunch of folks, I'm here, I'm not going any place, nothing you could do about it, but there's a lot I'm gonna do about making sure that you do better for people who look like me, who eat like me, who socialize like me, who party like me and who live like me in the communities that I live in. She helped me to find that very specific voice that was already there, but it just had not been woken. So
4: she was about more than just the awakening. It was about the conversation that follows representation, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Not just, and and this is a nuance that I always like to make with folks, especially with some of my woke friends today, um, not just about representation. We can be represented as we have been in Philadelphia for the last 40 years, that doesn't mean that our voices are heard. That doesn't mean that our needs are answered. We have to have representation, we have to have inclusion, and we have to have parity. And parity is difficult for people who are in power because they don't see themselves as needing to step away or step down so that people who actually know and experience something firsthand um, can lend their experience to the degree that will absolutely change The way that these conversations and these things actually go in our communities. So, to me, you know, if it's 25 people of color or black and brown people on something, great. If they're not allowed to talk, then not so great. And we have a lot of representation. We have a lot of representation, but we have very little parity, which is why, you know, these cycles of poverty. And these cycles of disparate uh, public health issues continue to be problematic uh, in black and brown communities.
4: Now, speaking of parody, you were one of the founding members of Colors, right? Now, it started out as a magazine and then it turned into its own evolutionary, revolutionary action within the LGBTQ communities and also within the HIV AIDS community, right? Can you tell us about that?
2: Absolutely. Let me say this to you that we started Colors, a group of us, they were a group of mostly Black and Latinx men who started Colors as a magazine. And we started the magazine because we said we just didn't find anything in you know, magazines and in reading that spoke to us, that represented us, that talked about what was important to us. So we started the magazine. And when we started the magazine, we distributed nationally was selling it in all these different places around the country and then somebody wrote to us and said okay this is cute you have a magazine you're raising consciousness and people are able to share their stories but what are you actually doing on the ground how are you making change on the ground and that's when i decided that i was going to start colors as an organization and let me tell you about the hate mail the death threats Yes, the hate mail and the death threats from people who are my friends today. But when we started, they were sending letters to the governor saying you should not allow them to get any state funding because they're taking it away from our organizations, which were white led organizations or the death threats where we actually had to have Philadelphia police officers in our office because people were threatening us for speaking up about who we were and how we weren't represented. Let me tell you, when the first $40,000 that we got for colors to do primarily HIV work in black gay communities, we got that money because I went to the then health commissioner Estelle Richmond, who is an amazing uh, figure in Philadelphia and the health community and the mental health community and in just so many ways. I went to Estelle and I said, Estelle, do you do realize that you're spending $120,000 at what is now known as Mazzoni Center, but then was known as Philadelphia Community Health Alternatives. You're spending $120,000 for them to do outreach in Black and Latinx communities. And they had no Black and Latinx people in their leadership. I said, that is unacceptable, Estelle. Black woman, that is unacceptable. And she agreed. And she took the $120,000 away from them, gave Colors $40,000, it was our first grant, $40,000, gave Galay $40,000, and gave $40,000 to Safeguards, who was another primarily white organization, but they did have Black folks working in leadership and they were reaching uh, Black communities. And that's how we got started. Right there, with that, standing up for ourselves and saying, this is unacceptable, it's not reaching our community, it's not led by our communities, therefore, it's probably never going to be really good for our communities.
4: And this is what you mean by going beyond representation and making sure that there's parity. Am I right? Is this what you're talking about?
2: Yeah. And somebody uh, in a position of of power who had, you know, decision making authority decided to go along with us.
4: And you say this is where we really need to look at things because the black and brown communities are not only siloed, but they're put aside in such a way that when now we add the HIV AIDS epidemic, it's created another layer Of invisibility. So when there's a problem where there's an issue within these communities, they're not just ignored. They're not given any credence. So there are definitely no solutions.
2: Yeah, we have to be we have to be clear about what we're up against, right? Historical and structural bias and discrimination and racism are things that took over 400 years to build. So one colors or one galay is not going to change that. We have been. Able to speak to a very small group of our people in a very powerful way, but it really requires and i'm especially excited about the work that's happening in communities today, but it really does require dismantling those historic systems of discrimination bias and racism right, we have to be very clear and intentional about that, because if you know. For Colors to get or Galay to get or the former organization ASIAC to get $40,000 from the government is one thing. But those wealthy white donors, they didn't invest in Colors. They didn't invest in saving Black lives. They didn't invest in saving Latinx lives. They didn't invest in saving Asian lives. And why did they not do that? They, did that. they didn't do it because there's a history of not believing that we know what's best for us. Right? And that's built into all of our public structures. That's built into our public health infrastructure. That's built into every response that every foundation has, every government institution has. It's built there, right? And until we dismantle that, we're always going to be either picking up crumbs or fighting each other for those crumbs. We have to be intentional that this time, this time after George Floyd, After all of those other folks who have lost their lives and have given us some prominence in the picture right now, we have to be intentional about tearing those systems down and saying, nope, that's not acceptable. That little piece right there, if I represent 12% of the population, there's no reason I should represent 78% of the people who seek homeless services. It's no reason for that, except for systemic discrimination, racism, and bias. And that's the same thing about HIV and AIDS. I was happy to be one of, not happy, I mean, there's nothing to be happy about, but I was fortunate enough to be the first co-chair of the community planning group for the city of Philadelphia for HIV. And that made it so that people who look like me could say to these very well-off, west mount airy types who are our allies right for me to say to them i have a voice i have a voice i can i can actually talk right i'm not i'm not here as a piece of artwork hanging on the wall or a cup sitting on the table that i actually have thoughts about you know what's good for me and what's not good for me and for my community and i'm willing to say that
4: and you said you're not apologetic about it because because we've all heard this is what's good for you. I No, 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 no. Let me tell you, this is what you need. And you're saying no more
2: or even more intentional on their part. Don't you mean this?
4: So the second guessing, the gaslighting, even unintentionally, it impedes the work from being done. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. So the work within the Black and brown communities with regard to HIV and AIDS, what needs to be done going forward? And what about those people out here who really believe that HIV and AIDS, that's no longer a problem? They're like, hey, AIDS, that doesn't exist anymore. Let's have that conversation. It's a
2: huge problem. It's a huge problem that 40 years after us finding out that this epidemic, pandemic existed, you know, in our communities too, not just in white gay communities they existed that this pandemic existed with black women with black heterosexual men with black gay men and that today 40 years later that is still the same and you're still you still have the same people in leadership positions saying what should be done and what shouldn't be done wipe it clean
4: because clearly it just hasn't
2: worked Because it hasn't worked. Why are we still reporting the highest numbers of HIV cases in the city of Philadelphia among Black men, specifically Black gay men? This has been the case for the last 40 years. Wipe it clean. Wipe it clean. Why are we ashamed to do that? Why are we ashamed to say we failed Black people again and we need to do something differently? Why are Black politicians not saying that? Why are Latinx politicians not saying that? Why why aren't our our Black community leaders in all the other places that are non-HIV, that are non-gay? Because guess what? Those are all intersections that we have to answer. The problem is that people have been comfortable putting Black gay people in this silo over here so they don't have to pay attention to them. Right. And so that those things can happen. And so that the world can move on thinking that it's not a problem anymore. But we're still quietly burying each other. So
4: you're saying this also goes beyond the matter of conditioning.
2: Well, it's not just that we've been taught and conditioned to do it. We have a society that's required us to do it. Our society has required us to be in the background. How many times do you hear? Oh, keep that to yourself that shouldn't be shared with anybody else, but I could go to work and see your pictures with your wife you're sharing that with me all the time right we've been required to sneak around in the dark right we've been required to be DL. That's just, you know, people have, you know, put that little thing out there years ago and it still exists today.
4: Yes. The term DL on the down low. We know it. We still use it.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Because that makes the other folks feel comfortable, feel comfortable. It's buried in uh, Nelson Mandela's acceptance speech. Of course, the piece of it was written by Marion Wilson and not. But this ideal that I, as a Black gay man, am supposed to play small so that you can have your comfort. Where do we get that from? Our oppressors. We get that from our oppressors. So how do
4: we change all of this? We have numbers that are surpassing numbers that we had 10, 20 years ago with regard to HIV. What changes the tide here?
2: You know what I think? Again, some of the dismantling work has to be done. And some of our friends... And I'm saying that some of our friends have to recognize that even their efforts have not been helpful and it's time for them to move out of that seat. Let Ashley Coleman, the executive director of Galay step in, right? Let any one of these really, really transparent, unapologetic and brave trans people step in those positions and represent themselves represent how they live every day cuz they're smart enough to do it but these people don't want to give up those positions they still want to be in power why do we have people that have been with organizations for 20 years 30 years and not said to themselves you know what this hasn't gotten better for the people who we started out helping it's getting worse for them it's time for me maybe to take a seat and not just take a seat develop some pipelines one of the groups that I joined last year just as a a writer, you know, from a public health perspective, is the Black and Latinx Community Control of Health Group, right? In that group, which is having a, a symposium on Saturday that I'm co facilitating, but that group, we wrote just this past year an entire plan responding to the ending HIV epidemic funds from the CDC. And we presented that to the city. And in that plan, what we said to them, why is it that young Black people are starting in frontline positions at these organizations and finding themselves there 15 years later in the same position? Why is that? Why is there no pipeline for leadership for those individuals? Why aren't we supporting them and going back to school and getting further in their education so that they can be better qualified to support and help their communities? The reason is because you're not interested, you've not been interested in solving the problem. Because if you were, you would know that the only way the problem gets solved is the same way it got started. The way it got started is because folks who look like me typically aren't going outside of our communities for anything. That's what the social note networks theory talks about in HIV, that the reason it spreads so much in Black communities is because Black folks typically aren't going outside of their geographic community or their demographic community to do something with somebody outside of that community. So how do you solve the problem by having people outside of that community come in and say what you should do? doesn't work.
4: So what's your message today in 2022, having seen over 40 years of the HIV epidemic and it's still here? What do you have to say to Philadelphia? And let's be honest, what do you have to say to people in power?
2: Oh, gosh, there's a song, but it's not appropriate. (laughs) It says, move, get out the way, get out the way, just get out the way, move, because we can do this. We can do this when we put our minds together to solve our problems. That's what we do. We make it better for everybody else. Think about it historically. Think about it historically. When Black folks put their minds together and do something, when Latinx folks put their minds together and do something, who else doesn't benefit from it? Who else doesn't benefit from it? We have to dismantle. I mean, the the easy thing is, you know, with all of the other stuff being important, the easy thing is We have to dismantle the systems that have historically said that I'm not enough.
4: And maybe that's done sometimes by just taking the mic.
2: Taking the mic and and really being unapologetic and saying to our friends, I know this doesn't feel good to you, but think about all the people who you're helping.
4: Thank you so much for being here, Mike.
2: For sure. Be safe, okay? 30 Seconds to Second Chances brought to you by the Gift of Life Donor Program. On the surface, devout Catholic Carol McLeod has little in common with Abdul Karim Salahuddin. First Muslim person I ever met. But their worlds collided with Carol's son, Ryan Dodd. He
0: was just an angel.
2: She donated his organs, saving Kareem's life. She made a decision to save other folks, to save me. The two realize they have much in common, and now they're family. She's a hero to me. Register as an organ donor at donors1.org and help save lives.
3: At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia. And since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org
1: the philly rising changemaker of the week presented by
3: deborah advanced behavioral health
5: kyw's antoinette lee here with this week's philly rising changemaker happy black history month y'all this week we're highlighting a very special kid we're highlighting some black excellence his name is mikey cooper he's a team from north philly with a lot of talents he could be the next Denzel Washington in the making, or maybe the next Kendrick Lamar. Like I said, he's very talented. Here's Mikey Cooper on Bridging Philly. Mikey Cooper is a 16-year-old from North Philly with a lot of talent and charisma.
0: I starred uh, as Tyus Crane in the premiere of Power Book 3, Raising Canaan, which was 50 Cent spin spin-off series off the Power Universe. Um, and most recently, um, which has been announced, March 18th, Amy Schumer comes out with her uh, Hulu series called Life and Beth which i star and reoccur in as young lavar which is beautiful so yes so my name is mikey cooper that's m-y-k-e-y-c-o-o-p-e-r and my title is actor artist entertainer poet public figure writers
6: (laughs) mikey why don't you just tell me a little bit about yourself when did you start writing and entertaining when did you realize you were interested in that
0: so, yes, I am basically born and raised in North Philadelphia. And so the majority of my life I was raised in Philly, North Philly. And basically the passion I found for writing, uh, probably like around nine or something like that, when I was writing poetry, I started off writing poetry. I still write poetry to this day. Um and poetry has always been this free creative expression to allow your emotions to reach a, a art form and then be showcased to the world. Um, and it always felt as if it was a different outlet than anything else I was doing at the time. So I started off with poetry and then, you know, all these years of experience in the acting industry um, and just doing multiple different projects and being on different sets and like that. Why wouldn't it not inspire me to want to write, you know, for a screenplay and stuff of that nature? And so I started doing that.
6: So you have a a very extensive resume. You're 16 years old, right?
0: Yes, ma'am.
6: And so you've accomplished a lot just over the past few years. Why don't you tell me about some of that?
0: Yes. So I've been acting for over 10 years now, writing for about three for screenplay slash comedy writing. And some of the most recent projects that I've done, I am the youngest writer at a major TV network. I write for NBC's Kid Tonight show on the Peacock Network. I have, I starred uh, as Tyus Crane in the premiere of Power Book 3, Raising Canaan, which was 50 Cent spinoff series off the Power Universe. Um, and most recently, um, which has been announced, March 18th, Amy Schumer comes out with her uh, Hulu series called Life and Beth, which I star and reoccur in as Young Lavar, which is beautiful. So, yes.
6: So you've done like so much.
0: <laughs> I've done a Your lot. Mama,
6: she must be really proud of you.
0: Oh, yes. She is definitely proud of me. That's my that's my backbone. That's my support system. I know that um, she is the most proud of me out of everybody.
6: She told me that you're you're homeschooled.
0: Yes, I've been homeschooled since the third grade. I left public school in the third grade and been homeschooled ever since. And I'm about to be a senior next year.
6: That's a big deal. What's that experience like?
0: I think homeschooling is beautiful. I think it's more so of everything that I wanted to do in, in my little life, Uh, at, you know, at that age in the third grade. My mom knew. Um public school was not fit for me. I was reading at a 12th grade reading level in the third grade. I didn't feel like I was getting the proper education myself. I even vocalized that to my mother. And so we both understood that what I wanted to do with my career as well was best. Um, and homeschool was in my best interest. And so I've been doing it ever since. Uh, I go to Commonwealth Charter Academy, um, you know, Pennsylvania's Cyber Charter School. Um, beautiful. It's flexible. You get to work at your own pace. And I just think it was it was the best fit for me and the best decision academically.
6: You were reading on a 12th grade level in third grade
0: yes my third grade shout out my third grade teacher miss nicole malino johnson now um it, she was she was a beautiful spirit she nurtured everything she saw the gifts in me before i saw them and even knew i had them um and you know she and my mom collaboratively just nurtured those gifts and so she was the one who was like you know you really just like are so prominent and proficient in, you know in my class and she was like you're reading on the 12th grade reading level i was like wow really i just thought this is normal
6: <laughs> so you're something like a genius
0: <laughs> a little bit I mean I wouldn't go as far to say a genius I, I would go as far as to say definitely a prophet um a young prophet make making a modern day prophet as those around me have regarded me as I definitely see a bright future for us and and trying to lead everybody in that direction to a bright future
6: So you've had a lot of experience with big stages and coming from North Philly, what's it like to give them a different representation rather than the stereotypes and the limited perspectives they might have in their mind about North Philly?
0: I've really noticed this growing up. A lot of people who have fallen in that hole tend to say this one phrase. I'm a product of my environment. And I don't just, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in the product of your environment phrase. I believe that everybody has the equal opportunity to separate themselves from the crowd and go out to do further things than what were centered around them. You never, you don't really have to bargain into, you don't really have to push yourself into this box that wasn't made for you. If it's just a box that's trying to force you down a wrong hole. And so I never fell into that. I was always wanting to stand out from the crowd. I always went my own way. I feel as though I never, you know, I never regarded myself under that label as a product In my environment I always felt that I would bring the product to the environment and that is the mission to reshape that perspective that you know you all that all North Philly is known for is killing and the homicide rates and this city in general is just known for the homicide rates and all of that and how this is a hot spot for that it's not there's light in this city there's beautiful light in this city and I try to shine a light on that everywhere I go and be a walking representation of that.
6: I love that so much.
0: My cousin, Jerry Johnson, from North Philadelphia herself, who stars alongside Megan Good, Grace Byers, um, and Shaniqua um, in Harlem on Amazon Prime, which is beautiful. Also, shout out her friend uh, who she went to high school with, Brett Gray, from North Philly as well, doing his thing, you know, starve On My Block. Just beautiful people from... Um, philly who are beautiful young people as well young millennials who are doing their thing and um doing their thing for for their city and showing them that you know we got talent here and talent out of here and there's good things that come out of here too
6: so you graduate next year what's your yes. plan after that
0: I plan to take a couple gap years after I graduate to focus on my career. Um, I feel like that's going to be the prime time where um, I'm just focused on furthering my acting um, and working on, you know, all of those auditions that are going to be coming my way and really uh, mastering my craft in that time. After I'm done doing everything I do, I need to do to set up my career, Go to take that time to then go to college and seek further education. I want to uh, major in drama. Now, y'all know um, y'all know Philly. What is Philly known for? What is uh, this city known for? Brotherly love. Right, community, that, that sense of community. So I plan to branch out. I stay in New York. New York is like my second home. I feel as though New York is not like my second home. I'm always there either filming, auditioning, doing something regarding a project, even writing. So I think I want to do maybe a, a residency there for a while after I graduate and it get situated after, into adulthood to go there and work on my career. And then after that... Come back home and bring everything that I've done home and instill in the community because my biggest thing is – you know, people are like, how do we help the communities of Philadelphia and especially North Philadelphia and stuff like that? Give the kids, give them an opportunity of hope that that's just not the only outlet. Give them the resources to see those other outlets. So things like workshops and classes and stuff like that for people of all entertaining fields who want to, who you know, an artistic outlet who want to do something else. And, you know, there's a light in them that could be nurtured and brought to the forefront.
6: What does Black History Month uh, mean to you and where do you see yourself fitting into this legacy of of Black excellence and, and Black empowerment?
0: My mission in life is to shine a good light on my people. My mission in life is to create art that tells a story and leaves a legacy for the black people to come in the future. My mission in life is to tell our story like it's never been told before alongside other black creatives, because it seems as if this industry has forgot that our culture is one of the most predominant cultures in the world and that it has influenced every piece of art that we touch. And so that's my mission to shine a light on all of that and tell stories that shine a light on the beautifulness of our culture.
6: Rapping is one of your favorite hobbies. So, you know, I I don't ask rappers onto the show without asking them to rap something for me.
0: (laughs) Okay. 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 Let's do it. Listen, listen. This is what we're doing, we're we elevating the mind I'm a different breed, I'm elevating the kind You'll find my mind, intellect, reach to the stars And you'll see the zenith in here I go really far, a spaceship in time I'm whooping through portals, you'll find It's a half you stuck with the magic between In a line, these rappers talk about Their chakras is good, not a line But I'm aligning my spirit so that I can reach God, potentially I'm the divine Honest to be, true is key Spitting so sick and eloquently These rappers believe that spiritual line is me Between you, not soul, competition I never saw I see all of my brothers in the line Unified, these rappers fine Lyrically spitting at my time I'm prime, this is that Digit that move wide Cause y'all find My number is angel wide Fly now, if
5: you're interested in following Mikey along in his journey, he's active on Instagram at Mikey Cooper. Mikey is spelled M-Y-K-E-Y. That's M-Y-K-E-Y. In addition to the many things that he does and, and takes pride in, he also has a podcast and a YouTube channel. So you can find the links to that on his Instagram. That's it for this week's Philly Rising Changemaker, y'all. If you know a Philly Rising Changemaker we should highlight next, please reach out. You can find me on Twitter at AR Leon. Air. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. Thank you for listening.
1: Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Oregon donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me, Raquel on air. And please subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Sharaday, Howard, and our producer, Arian
6: Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.